Let us pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, for your grace and your mercy, uh, we give you thanks, Lord. Uh, the heavens are your handiwork, and uh, they declare uh, the greatness of you. And so, Lord, we pray that we would delight in that which you delight in, that which is beautiful, and that which is true. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay, so uh, we're going to wrap up this week, uh, the sort of heart fours. Um, I have a secret heart, which I'll talk about later, uh, but that's what makes it a secret, so I'll just draw you along. Uh, thank you, Catherine. Uh, so, oh, by the way, I still, ha I still have your sleds. I still have your sleds. I'll give them back later. Never. So, um, a heart, uh, we have a heart for the gospel, we have a heart for claiming the message of Jesus Christ, uh, the prote of the gospel, that Jesus is for you. Uh, we have a heart for those who have never heard the gospel, uh, whether they be in Birmingham or whether they be in Djibouti. Uh, we also have a heart for those who have been uh, um, burned or, or broken uh, by the church, those who grew up in, uh, in a church where they uh, heard uh, the message uh, proclaimed, and they have an idea about Christianity that is actually a wrong-minded idea about Christianity. It's it's a um, an idea that God is sort of the mean dean, uh, and that the church is the spiritual arm of the sheriff's department, and uh, we are out to get you. And uh, and I'll be honest with you, if if that's the kind of Christianity that I was. Uh, Sold, I would say no thank you uh, to that as well. I've got enough people in my life telling me what I ought to do. And, um, and, uh, and then out of that, you know, so, okay, we have a heart for the gospel. Uh, we have a heart uh, for those who haven't heard and for those who have been broken uh, by the church. Uh, and, and that ministry has been uh, very clear, I think, here at the Advent. I think we could do a better job, uh, and we will be doing a better job of talking about how we go about telling people who have never heard about Jesus, uh, our mission and outreach in, in those areas. Uh, but those happen largely off campus, and because most of you are only here, all of you are really only here uh, on Sunday mornings for good reason. I mean, uh, in the words of Hank Williams Jr., you're only getting mugged if you go downtown. Just kidding, you're not going to get mugged, but you, you, know, you know what I mean. And uh, unless it's Lenten lunches. If you're here for Lenten lunches, of course, you're downtown. So you really only get a snapshot of what happens on Sunday morning. And I think in our preaching and in our teaching, you know uh, that we do love Jesus, uh, that we proclaim the gospel, and we have a heart for those uh, who certainly have been uh, burned by the church and broken by the church. Uh, but one of the things that I think that you see when you, if you were to pick up one of the Rogers books, for you to pick up uh, one, John Harper's new book, which, by the way, we got our second shipment in, the second printing. Uh, so if you're interested in buying one, you can get one from the bookstore. Uh, and I didn't say it. Shoot. I forgot to make a big announcement this morning. Ah! Feel like Frank. <laughs> Clergy, how could you let me forget that? announcement about a anyway, if you're looking for a Lent devotional uh, there's a really great one by a guy named Bo Geertz who was a bishop in the church of Sweden and it's called to live with Christ and it's for sale in the bookstore really great it's the devotional that I use uh, so I can vouch for it it's it's really wonderful and then also that we have an, another limited run of ties uh, bow ties and long ties if you didn't weren't able to buy one the first time you can get one now so <laughs> Thus ends the announcements that I should have made 45 minutes ago. Um, but one of the bigger themes, if you read one of the Rogers books or if you read John Harper's book, 
is um, that the Advent has always had a heart for the city of Birmingham. And why do I think that that's important? Well, one, I think that there's a biblical reason why the city is important. Uh, the city, I think, has been largely, especially in America, in most of, uh, of the sort of self-identified Christians in the world, would say, I, I don't necessarily live uh, in, in America, wouldn't necessarily be really excited about moving to the city, a place like New York or even Birmingham uh, to an extent. Uh, and so, but what you see in the scriptures is where were Paul's missionary journeys to? Where did he preach? Where did he spend his time? Um, no offense to uh, Chelsea, he didn't go to Chelsea. You know, he didn't. Uh, he didn't preach in places like Pelham, uh, although he might have done along the way. And that didn't mean that he thought of them as any less than anywhere else. But what Paul understood and what God's mission uh, was is that if the gospel is preached in a city, it's a crossroads for culture and people. And when the gospel is preached, it begins to go to the ends of the earth. Right? So when Paul writes in his letter to the Ephesians, uh, he's writing to Christians uh, a good chunk of whom, uh, he planted the church in Ephesus, but also Christians who were in Rome, uh, who were expelled, uh, didn't they, they ran away, uh, when Nero persecuted them due to the fire that he accused them of burning Rome. But of course, history tells us that it was probably Nero himself who set the fire or ordered it done. And so the Christians from Rome were now, a lot of them were now in Ephesus in Greece. And so the city has always played an important part uh, in, in the mission of the church. And that's not, again, to the neglect uh, of the little villages. But what you find, there's a great book written a couple years ago. I can't, this is not like a beach reading book, but it was called The Barbarian Conversion. And I thought it was a, a book on parenting. And, uh, and so I picked it up and I started looking at it. And, uh, and it was really fascinating. It, again, it's, it's somebody's doctoral thesis, I'm sure, that's been printed. Uh, but what they said is, you know, so goes the city, so went the villages, uh, because people would then go from the Paul would preach, and then people from the city would then go out. And he, they were really talking about the conversion of Western Europe when uh, all of our ancestors were wearing helmets with horns on them and uh, raiding English villages, uh, which was an improvement. So uh, the city has always played an important part. And the verse that uh, the passage of scripture that keeps coming to mind for me, especially as we think about having a heart for the city of Birmingham, is uh, in uh, Jeremiah, of all places. Uh, Jeremiah writes a letter to the exiles in Babylon. Of course, they'd all, uh, most of whom had been carried off. Jerusalem had been leveled. And uh, Jeremiah writes uh, this letter. Thus says the Lord of hosts, this is chapter 29. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Um, that uh, is, is such a striking passage of scripture to me because one, uh, the Israelites are, are not there because they want to be there. It's not like you know they got a brochure in the mail one day and they thought, well, a timeshare in Babylon would be really nice. But in fact, it probably would be. They had the hanging gardens there. Um, 
and it was a wonder of the world, and they were a great and powerful kingdom. And yet they were there not because they wanted to, and not only that, uh, they were there because they'd been destroyed. Uh, And uh, I don't know about you, but uh, I played golf competitively when I was younger, and one of the hardest things for me to do was to play golf against someone, and if they trounced me, I don't mean like, I mean, but it was even worse if they just barely beat me, and I knew I was better than them. Uh, to, to sit and hang out with them after the round and to be in their presence. I wanted, it just bugged me. I just wanted to get out of there, but I was told, no, the thing to do is, you know, be social and, and be with them and try to be nice. And so uh, I, I, that's such a ridiculous illustration, but I mean, think about if you've ever been in the presence of an enemy, especially one who has victory and authority over you, right? You don't, you don't want to be near them, but most of us in our lives can get away from them pretty easily. We can go home, uh, we can move tables, we can walk away from them, uh, whatever, but uh, they're living in, in the midst of people that they don't necessarily want to be around. And they're not there, they're there because of, uh, of being defeated. They're not there uh, by their own uh, choice. And so uh, if I were an Israelite, my response would probably be, I'm gonna lay low, I'm just gonna wait it out, Uh, for 70 years or however long the Lord sees fit uh, to keep us here, and I will only think about the day uh, where I long to see Jerusalem again and to see her walls be rebuilt. I would be living in the future and just biding my time here in the present. God speaks a word through Jeremiah, and he says, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So the first thing we know is that God sent them there. God actually sent them into exile. God was instrumental in getting them to go uh, to Babylon. And of course, if you read Daniel or any of the other uh, uh, books of the Bible around the time of uh, of the exile, uh, clearly the Israelites played a really important role in the life of Babylon the barbarian horde uh, behind us um, coming through the wall. Um, They played an important role in the life of Babylon, and God had them there because he wanted them there. But it wasn't just, he said, look, this is not just an issue of, and this is another thing about mission or going, it's not just about treating people as spiritual statistics and saying, we're going to introduce you to Jesus, and once you're in a relationship with Jesus, uh, we're, we're out of here. God says, Here's what I want you to do. I want you to build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. I want you to marry off your children. I want you to get married, have children, marry off your children, uh, bear sons and daughters, multiply there, do not decrease. And I want you to seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now, I don't feel like an... I don't feel like I'm in exile in Birmingham, right? And I I hope uh, that none of you feel that way. I actually have a a love uh, for the city of Birmingham. And already you see that there's some amazing things happening in Birmingham uh, around us. And the Lord says, wherever, you know, I don't want to be cheesy and say, bloom where you're planted. Uh, But in a sense, what God is saying is that, Where you are is where I have sent you, whether you feel it or not. And what I want you to do is I want you to lay down roots and I want you to invest. I want you to invest. Even knowing that it's probably going to hurt. One, it's going to, you don't want to, A. And B, uh, 
it's going to hurt because ultimately he goes on in chapter 29 to say, I'm, I'm going to send you eventually back to Jerusalem. And if you've ever had a, a feeling of living in a community after investing so much in it and being uprooted, it's a really painful experience. So much so I mentioned this in the annual meeting uh, at a minister growing up who knew that I was called ordination and was really instrumental in that. And he said, um, don't get too close to your people. Don't get too close to your congregation, he said, because eventually you're going to have to move and leave them, and it's just going to hurt too much. And then I got into ministry, and I said, well, heaven help us if Jesus had felt that way. Um, <laughs> and, um, and I understand him wanting to draw boundaries and things like that, uh, but that's not what ministry is about. That's not the mission of the church. We actually invest in people who want to kill us. All right? We actually throw ourselves over and... and wholeheartedly uh, sink ourselves into the situations that we would rather not be in. And we involve ourselves in areas that uh, most of us might think of as, as no-go uh, zones. And so the biggest problem the church has right now, I just came from diocesan convention, which is a real experience. And, um, and this year it was pretty, I mean, I hate to say it, it, it wasn't, you know, normally it's exciting for all the wrong reasons. Uh, this year it was pretty mundane, and so I had a lot of time just to sit and listen and not listen and take notes. And uh, in the conversations that I was having uh, around uh, that room and around the diocese and around the church uh, when I've been to general convention and things like that, um, one of the things that I realized is the most, I, you know what, I'm just going to say, I think it's the most pressing issue in the church, and it's not the question regarding sexuality. It is a lack of of thoughtfulness and creativity on the part of clergy in the church. Right? Um, I think that that's one of the, if not the biggest problem, one of the biggest problems we're placing. Because one is that, well, first the question is, what is it we're proclaiming to the world? Well, we're proclaiming Jesus and Jesus crucified to the world. Desire to know nothing among you except Jesus and Christ and him crucified. But the question is not, uh, well, that's all right. We've got the message down. The tricky part and the challenge of the church today is how do we proclaim that message to the world in the context in which we live in? That's the hard part. And the church is typically 10 years behind the curve at best. Right now, there's a big move, and I think it's a good one in our diocese. And I think it's if it's if they stay focused, they'll be all right. But it could easily fall into something that would not be that helpful. And that is there's a, a group in the diocese that wants to start. A, um, a coffee shop downtown and sort of be a gathering place for Christians, right? Not a bad idea, but of course every megachurch did that in 1992, right? That's what everybody was, but like for Episcopalians, that is unbelievable, that's an amazing idea, right? That's, <laughs> why didn't we think of this 20 years ago? Um, uh, and so um, I actually think that, it, that their angle is a little bit different, and I, and I think that that will help make it a little bit different. Uh, but at the same time, we're not very good, and, and still our ideas will come to us, and we'll tell you all about Jesus. Right? Rather than uh, Zacchaeus, come down out of that tree because I'm going to your house uh, tonight. And so figuring out how to proclaim the gospel and meet people where they are in life uh, is really, really difficult. And a lot of it is just the stuff uh, that that they're dealing with in life and, and what wakes them up in the middle of the night. And I think sometimes the church, and I'm speaking of the Episcopal Church here, thinks that the big issues in people's lives 
are certain things when in fact they're none of those things. They're none of those things. Uh, the, one of the uh, guys on diocesan staff, he's a priest in the Diocese of Arizona, and he is no conservative, was talking about the issue of sexuality. And what he said was this. He said, you know, when is the church going to realize that when somebody who might self-identify as gay or lesbian comes into the church, that they might actually want to hear about Jesus rather than some sort of agenda or some sort of overarching theme to ministry that actually, did we ever stop and think that everybody needs Jesus? And everybody might want to hear the gospel proclaimed. And so he's on to something and not getting distracted by a lot of what's going on in the world today, but in fact sticking with the message. And yet at the same time, how do you preach it? Uh, how do you make Jesus come alive in uh, the hearts of those uh, who are coming to hear or you're being involved in? Well, one, of course, we have Sunday mornings. The church has been largely negligent toward the city, which is why the cities and urban areas tend to be the most anti-Christian areas uh, in the United States. And that's because this church has largely just hit the ejector button and backed out. The Advent is a very unusual exception to that. I was invited to the North American Dean's Conference, uh, and I just got like a regular mailer. And then I got, and I thought, well, it was in Miami. Uh, and uh, <laughs> there was an optional cruise add-on uh, to it as well. <laughs> And I, and I, you know, I thought, I said, I, you know, it's hard. This is so ridiculous because I say things like, you know, I probably ought to go. And, and people are like, oh, yeah, you ought to go. And like, some, what if it was in Omaha? People would be like, hmm, sounds important. You should go. <laughs> and then um, next year it's in Jerusalem. And then the year after that it's in Honolulu. <laughs> they have nothing to do. I mean, honestly, uh, and so finally I got a follow-up call from the host dean. And he said, I'm just following up and, and seeing if you got the information and whether or not you're able to attend. And I said, well, gosh, do you call every dean in, in North America? He said, no, uh, you're only one of about four out of the hundred some odd in North America that I'm calling. And I said, why? <laughs> and he said, um, he said, you and three other cathedrals, and they're almost always downtown, he said, you're the only ones that we could point to and say you actually have some sort of life. Uh, you actually have some. So the theme this year is something to do with preserving our historic buildings. Right? Talk about a recipe for death. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, basically, and a lot of, and he said, you know, a lot of these uh, cathedrals only stay alive. Uh, the cathedral in Rhode Island just closed its doors. Uh, and a lot of these places only stay open because of endowments. I mean, how about that for a, a theme for convention? Living off dead men's money. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, uh, I'm a big fan of endowments, don't get me wrong. But, uh, but they shouldn't be the core of your budget or where you get your money from. And so uh, what they're having a hard time figuring out, and it's a mystery to them, is it boggles their minds. So let me get this right. You're, you're downtown. You're one of the largest churches in the Episcopal Church. Yes. You're downtown. Yes. Is parking a problem? Yes. Uh, and let me get this straight. You use right one? Yes. Uh, and, and your morning prayer parish? Yes. And like in their mind, they're thinking that is the worst possible combination of factors. Like that's what shuts churches down. And, uh, and I said, well, here's the deal. I said, there's a method to, there's a method to our madness. And I said, it has to do, we're, we're a theology-driven church, and we have a theological vision that drives everything that we do. And so the reason why we use right one is not because we're into Elizabethan language, but it meets us where we are. 
And sometimes I, I know people get offended when they pray the prayer of humble access and say that they're not worthy to so much as gather up the crumbs under uh, thy table. That is offensive. It really is offensive. And yet he is the Lord whose property is always to have mercy. And so there's a reason why we use right one, not just because we're really into um, uh, the language, but because of theology and and preaching the same way. I mean, one of the things, too, that is very different, they said, well, surely being the church you are, you must have really long sermons. And I said, no, 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 no. <laughs> uh, I said, uh, you know, we preached literally nine to uh, 14 minutes. And, um, and, and they're just amazed by that. And I said, well, if it takes you that long to sort of lay the gospel out for somebody, hang it up. I mean, just, I mean, I, I've, I said, you know, it's, it's long enough. Uh, and I said, but you should listen to our classes because we do unpack things there. And um, he was just, it, it blew his mind. And it bothers me that these things are recorded because someone will listen to them one day and write a very long letter to me. But the story that I absolutely love about the Advent and is a great testimony to our presence downtown in this city is that it was Easter Sunday. And of course, this early service, the seven was getting out, or maybe the nine, no, it was the nine was getting out and the next one was coming in and of course everybody was on the steps on 21st street and there was a guy jogging down 6th avenue and he jogged by once uh going uh west and then he turned around and jogged back and there were still people trying to get into the church and he yelled out there's no line at first methodist Now, I know Keith over at First Methodist, so uh, I, can, I, I think I can tell that story. But and First Methodist is a different place now. Um, they're, they're, they're doing some neat things over there. Uh, but the thing about it is, is that uh, we're, we're a, city, uh, a, a church in the heart of the city with a heart for the city. Uh, we really do have a heart for the city. And if you read these books about the history of the Advent, um, you, you find that members of the Advent have been involved in the arts have been involved in historical preservation, have been involved in the community uh, through uh, elected office or just being involved civically in, in what's going on. Um, you know, The Birmingham Business Journal just came out with their 40 under 40 and there were parishioners uh, there. Um, we've got parishioners who, uh, who are active and, and even head things like the United Way and uh, the Community Foundation of Greater Birmingham. And so we have a disproportionate influence, like the Episcopal Church has always had, of people who are actively involved in the community and part of the leadership. And what drives us, I hope to do that, is that we're like the exiles in Babylon who say, this is my city. Right? I know that the Son of Man has no place to lay his head, and that for those of us who are Christians, we have no abiding city, and yet this is where God has placed us. And our welfare is dependent upon the welfare of the city. And so we're going to do everything in our power, because this is what God wants for us, is to make Birmingham the city that God has called it to be. And we're going to be a witness to that. And that's not saying, you know, um, that we're going to, uh, you know, maybe we can buy the naming rights to Regions Field and, uh, and uh, you know, Limehouse Field uh, and, uh, or whatever it is. And like, uh, at, you know, instead of the out-of-town scores, we just do verses across the billboard and, and things like that. I know. I, I'm not talking, I'm actually, you know, talking about being involved, uh, you know, you've heard art for art's sake, but art for God's sake. Um, one of the things the Christian community has shied away from, and I'm glad the Advent hasn't done this, um, but 
one of the things that strikes me about Genesis, and people talk about this a lot, is when it says that we are created in the image of God, what does that mean? I, I, for a while, I used to rack my brain about that. What does it mean? And actually, the only thing that we can hang our hat in in looking at the narrative from Genesis when we were creative, when we were created, was that the thread running through that and what makes us in the image of God is like God, we're all born with the urge to create something. That, that actually is, is sort of the image of God placed in us that he's put inside of our hearts, uh, the, the urge to create something. And, and it dawned on me when I read, uh, some of y'all know who Dorothy Sayers is, and uh, she wrote, uh, wrote this. Uh, is it his immortal soul, his rationality, this is God, so his self-consciousness, his free will, or what that gives him a claim to this rather startling distinction? A case may be argued for all these elements in the complex nature of man, but had the author of Genesis anything particular in mind when he wrote? It is observable that in the passage leading up to the statement about man, he has given no detailed information about God. Looking at man, he sees in him something essentially divine. But when we turn back to see what he says about the original upon the image of God was modeled, we find only the single assertion, God created. The characteristic common to God and man is apparently that, the desire and the ability to make things. And so that's why, and the Episcopal Church has been very good at this, although um, with few exceptions, uh, that's why when we build worship spaces, we want them to be beautiful, right? We want people to look at it and say, that is beautiful. And what makes something beautiful in art is the fact that it's true, right? It, it, there's something about good art that when we look at it, we say there's something true about that because it meets us, it touches us somewhere inside. I mean, I would love, you know, every once in a while I hear about this and I always want to get attendance figures and I've called ones. I called the Cleveland Symphony once and, um, and they wouldn't give them to me. Uh, but they did something on like dissonant symphonies from 1950 to 1975. And I went, how many people showed up for that? <laughs> and um, none, I guarantee nobody. Why? Because nobody wants to, uh, to go and hear that stuff. There, there's something about really good music or, or really good, I mean, some... Some of you know when there's a certain artist that speaks to you that when that artist comes through town or their works are on display, uh, you'll, you'll drive to Atlanta. You'll, you'll go somewhere just to see uh, their art because they, it speaks to you in a very particular uh, in certain way. And yet um, most Christians or a lot of Christians really aren't that interested or opposed uh, to the arts. And uh, there are lots of reasons uh, why that is. And especially in the latter part of the 20th century, art, uh, as well as um, other areas of the metropolitan uh, scene, uh, has been dominated by an anti-Christian view. Uh, and that's because artists are becoming increasingly cynical about the possibility of knowing truth. Uh, Stuart McAllister uh, once said, uh, he's an art critic, much of the energy and effort of our artists and cultural architects has gone into debunking, dismantling, or deconstructing all that is good, beautiful, and respected to be replaced with the shallow, the ugly, the ephemeral. Uh, Susie Gablick, who's a very funny art critic, once wrote, the art world has become, quote, a suburb of hell. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and, and I'm afraid uh, that, uh, that they are, are somewhat right. And yet we have in John Calvin's writings, he says this, all the arts come from God, 
and are to be respected as divine interventions. Um, and so what we're looking at in being involved in the city, whether it be arts or civic involvement, uh, his, even historical preservation, uh, art communicates truth. Uh, art is only true if it points in some way, though, to the one true story of salvation, the story of God's creation, human sin, and the triumph of grace through Christ. Now, what I'm not saying is that if you're going to be an artist, you have to do all Christian thematic things. Like they, Jesus has to be in every, There was an artist growing up in our town who used to... Uh, paint an owl in every one of their paintings. Like a little, I'm not saying you have to paint like a little Jesus in every single one of your paintings. Uh, and of course, all anybody ever looked for was the owl, right? Nobody ever actually took in the, the artist's work. But, right, I mean, that's what art is supposed to do is to communicate truth. And so the reason why it touches part of your heart is that you go and you see something uh, or you walk by a building and there's something about it that just awes you almost in the same way that God would, right? His fingerprints are, are somehow on it. Art is, is true. And, and again, it, it's sometimes, I mean, a lot of art, I've seen really good art that is a little bit incomplete, uh, like uh, Stuart McAllister's comment about um, about it, it needs to, that, that it's, it's normally uh, the cynical view uh, about the world. Uh, there's something terribly discouraging uh, about certain art, and there are times when I say, well, that's kind of true, but that ain't the whole story, right? That that ain't the whole story, that there's actually redemption. And again, that doesn't mean that they, they paint a little rainbow over on the, on the horizon. In fact, that, that would be the worst thing that they could do. Uh, but, uh, but in their whole portfolio of work, uh, there's something uh, true and beautiful uh, about it. I went to high school with a guy named Greg Helvey, who even in high school in rural Virginia, we called Hollywood Greg, and that was not um, that was uh, not a, um, a flattering remark. That was not meant to uh, to boost him up. He was always very artsy, and we gave him the hardest time uh, until Greg got nominated for an Academy Award. <laughs> uh, that rekindled a lot of friendships. Uh, <laughs> But actually, Greg and I went to high school together and then went to college together and have stayed pretty close. And uh, Greg, uh, they, there's also um, a student award given by the Academy of Motion Picture uh, and Arts, and he won that one. Uh, but he was nominated for a short film called Kavi. And here's the thing. This is a good example of, of Christians uh, focusing in on the world that is trying to kill them. Uh, Greg uh, had always, Greg and I actually, um, after 9-11, we figured we could get cheap airfares to Arab nations, and we were right. And so um, against the protestations of our family, Greg and I, uh, I met him, he was living in England, we met in England, and then we flew to North Africa and did two weeks on uh, Camelback through the Sahara Desert. And... Uh, if you don't come out friends, you, you come out dead uh, after that. Uh, we had a lot of time together. And, um, and we spent a couple other weeks just going around Tunisia, and we jumped the border over in Algeria in the back of a truck, and um, we just told everybody we were German. And, um, and they believed it. So, but uh, Greg was really moved by what, um, I, I, I mean, at the time, I mean, this is just 2001, um, we were uh, talking to a guy who was a missionary in Tunisia. We were talking about the main street in Tunis, and he said, all those people are sex slaves, you know, the ones that were coming up to you, that they're actually... We just thought, slavery in, in 2000? What? 
He says, yeah, they've been taken from their homes and, and they're in the sex trade and, and that. And it really sort of bothered Greg. And at this point, Greg had graduated from the University of Virginia. Uh, but at that moment, he said, I think I'm going to film school, right? And I have a brother who was an art, was a music major in, in college. And, uh, and the joke growing up was, Christopher, what's the difference between a music major and a large pepperoni pizza? A large pepperoni pizza can feed a family of four. And, uh, <laughs> and so he wanted to go get an MFA from the University of Southern California. And we were like, this is so typical. And, uh, but he went and he got his, uh, and he, he's a filmmaker now. And all of it, from that one trip, uh, he, God uh, pricked at his heart. And he made a film called Kavi, K-A-V-I. And uh, you can get online and check it out. And, um, and it's the story of a little boy who was taken from his home in India and, uh, and, and sold into slavery. And, uh, and, and Greg's whole point was to make something, uh, to, it was art, right? He, he, he had an agenda, but it wasn't an agenda that overshadowed the art. But he wanted to make something beautiful and something true. And so much so that the Academy uh, of Motion Pictures and Arts was able to look at it and say, this is worthy. Uh, of a nomination, and um, and so he was uh, he won the student award and then was nominated for another one that he that he didn't get. Although all the critics said this is the film that should win, but we all know this one's going to win. Um, and, uh, and and that film uh, had a powerful impact on a lot of people of raising awareness that there was an issue uh, in the world and there's nothing in it that is necessarily explicitly Christian and yet it is all about human brokenness and it's all about redemption. Uh, and, and that points people uh, toward God and, and begins the, the, the idea of, of wrestling with those questions of why, why should I care? Because the testimony of the church, especially the early church, uh, I don't want people to get the idea that the early church was sunshine and lollipops. And people will often say, Can't, we just want to be the early church. Really? I mean, Ananias and Sapphira getting struck dead. I don't really want to be the early church. Um, I want to be the church now. Uh, and, but one thing that you do see in the early church is that uh, people said, see how they loved one another so much that it provoked others to jealousy. That these Christians were actually throwing themselves into the welfare of the city. And so all of these amazing things are happening around Birmingham right now with the revitalization of downtown. Even though there are so many people who are moving outside of downtown, business-wise, uh, never before have we had more people moving downtown. And so we have a wit an opportunity to witness. And most of those people moving downtown are the people that um, most people say they're not necessarily in our wheelhouse. right? They're the people who, um, who really are not necessarily interested in coming to church, uh, much less the Advent. But how do we bring the gospel to them, and how do we minister to that to that community? How do we care about downtown to make to understand that that we have a stake in it, uh, and and to see the revitalization of the city, uh, to uh, to have a role? Actually, the church having a role in uh, in supporting uh, the the arts and and making uh, Birmingham a, a, a shining city on the hill uh, that God has called us uh, to be. Uh, one of the things that, that is really remarkable about uh, Birmingham is that I think that, uh, Catherine, you'll have to help me with this, that per capita we're the largest, most charitable giving city in the United States. That is, uh, thank you. I'm, I'm glad I wasn't wrong about that. Uh, Drew, is that, Drew? 
you're not here. Um, <laughs> just uh, but yeah, so uh, we're the per capita the, the most generous city uh, in the United States, the largest giving, I guess I should say. And that's one of the things that's really remarkable about Birmingham, because there's no one major benefactor or government support for the things that go on in Birmingham. Right? So regardless of what you think about Hillary Clinton, it takes a village. <laughs> right? It really, it really does. And, and uh, Maritain, uh, the French uh, philosopher, was right when he said, the job of community, he was a Christian, he said the job of community, community exists for the rescue of person. Community exists for the rescue of person. And that is, the community exists to put forward truth and beauty and help develop other people's call that God has in their life and help bring that to fruition, whatever uh, that might be. And it's a much more holistic approach uh, to community living than what the world puts forward. Right? Uh, most people, when they graduate high school or college, they're told you can be a doctor, you can be a lawyer, you can be this, you can be, there are about five things. Um, and, and most people uh, think that they're limited uh, to those things. And yet what we find is that uh, in, in the city of God, uh, you have um, a lot of creativity and a lot of thoughtfulness uh, in the early church and throughout the centuries, even by those who were considered fuddy-duddies. So you get to the 1700s with the great evangelical revivals. They were the most creative, innovative men and women on the face of the earth. Right? Not only was John Wesley out preaching at the opening shafts of coal mines to the coal miners as they would go into the mines and as they would come out of the mines, uh, he was opening up orphanages. Oldest orphanage in the United States, Epworth, Savannah, Georgia, started by John Wesley when he was a missionary there in 1736. Uh, amongst that great revival group, the Clapham sect, y'all know who they are? Um, the Wedgwoods, the... Um, Wilberforces, uh, the Newtons, uh, all of them. And so uh, they were all swept up into this great revival and you had scientists, you had people working uh, to end uh, the slave trade. Uh, you had uh, people involved in setting up civic institutions. Uh, you had uh, job training, you had all of this stuff, all because the message of the gospel was preached. And it wasn't that anybody was sitting there saying, well, because we're Christians, we've got to start this, we've got to maintain this, we've got to do this, and we've got to respond to that. But simply because God was working in their lives, and they were called, and they said, I think I want to open up an orphanage. And they said, let's do it. Uh, I, think that, I think God's calling me to end the slave trade. Let's do it. And in every single instance when they started out, the initial, op the initial response was complete and total opposition. In every instance of the word. So the culture was always against them when they put forth the word, and yet, uh, again, the culture is always going to oppose that which is good for them, always. And so it is my prayer and my hope that, um, that the Advent continues to have a, a heart for the city of Birmingham. I know that was kind of all over the place, but it's a big topic, and uh, you'll probably see it wo woven throughout uh, talks and sermons uh, for the next 38 years. Uh, any um, <laughs> Any comments, questions, concerns? Are there new projects that the Advent is looking to get involved with in the city as opposed to maintaining? Yeah, I think that one of the great things about the Advent is that it hasn't been like the Advent on a whole has gotten involved. I mean, I could literally go around this room and start talking about almost all of you in here and your own civic involvements. 
I mean, like, I, can, I mean, I picked on Catherine a little bit today. I mean, I could start talking about Ed Partridge. I could do a six-part series on him uh, and, and his ministry through medicine, um, but I won't. Uh, so uh, I think that that's, that's really what's ex- exciting because nobody can say, man, the Advent really twists people's arm to get involved in, in stuff. People just do it. They do it because Jesus has changed their hearts, and now they actually care. They have a heart uh, for for the city and and beyond. But I I, I do try to I mean I try I, mean, I think that what you will see if there's a difference like especially with me I probably will be more involved in the city and in the community than than previous deans, um, only because I think that that's that's important. And I think too I mean the Advent is really well respected and has a rightful place, and and I think that we ought to be in on the decision making for certain certain issues. I just want to commend you for taking that position. Well, Jeremiah did it. I, that was thousands of years ago. I'm just piggybacking. <laughs> Thank you, Kevin. Are you saying that, that this kind of approach is one way of changing the heart of the city? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there's an idea in theology called common grace, and that is, and art is very much that, uh, and whether that's architecture or anything, that that people can act, that God shows his grace upon them through just sort of everyday living and everyday life. Um, Last week's gospel reading said that, where Jesus said, God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. There's this notion of of common grace, and I do think that these are avenues in which we can meet people, because a lot of people who who are involved in those communities just think of Christians as knuckle-dragging Neanderthals who are just over and against anything that the church has actually been traditionally for. Like There would be no such thing as a college or a university if it weren't for Christians, or a hospital, or a whole host of other things in the world. Okay, let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, um, we thank you for your common grace, but Lord, we thank you for your specific grace uh, showed to us through Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be open to the call that you have on our lives, uh, Lord, to sink ourselves into the city uh, which you have called us to. For, Lord, indeed, it is true uh, that um, in its welfare, uh, we find our welfare And so, Lord, uh, we pray that you would uh, go before us and go beside us and open our eyes to where you would have us sink in. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.